<laughs> I haven't done this in a while. Okay, so this is Song of Solomon 3, 1 to 5. Um, On my bed by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Thanks, we'll pray. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We present ourselves to you, and we find ourselves here in church on this Sunday morning, um, maybe distracted, and maybe even uninterested, and maybe um, busy in our thoughts. Right here and right now, we present ourselves to you, Lord. Thank you that you are a bold and handsome lover and that you are worthy to be sought after. We confess um, we are slow to seek you and um, we spend much of our life and much of our days and much of our time not in your courts and not in your chambers. And so we turn our hearts again to you and we receive the love of Christ. We want to have soil that is rich for you. Um, We want to, we were made to um, grow beautiful things That's the design that you have put in us. And so um, we say yes to your ability to love us. And um, yeah, we we want that and we want your love. and, And thank you that you are available to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Crystal. So, if you are, um, if you've been interested in our alliterations um, for each particular book, uh, the alliteration is uh, wonder, wisdom, and work. And that's kind of going to give us framework for the sermon this morning because, again, The uh, Song of Songs, or Solomon, whichever you choose, we're not going to really get into it too much, John, so he kind of, you know, he gave us, he gave me a little bit of derailment there. No, Um, the Song of Songs is quite a a song. In fact, I stopped, I had the 
the reading stopped at that particular point where Crystal was reading because it does get a little more um, vivid. The imagery is a little intense. The song is quite uh, a song. Um, Monday morning, in fact, I had a, at a meeting downtown and, uh, and I decided to, to walk there, which meant that I had time to pop in my headphones and listen to a dramatic reading of the Song of Songs. Round trip from my house to uh, the coffee shop is 3.2 miles, which meant that I listened to the entire book several times. And it's a weird thing when, when Gregory from Dwell's uh, Bible reading app makes you all big-eyed and blushy. <laughs> a couple times I'm walking through downtown and I was just going, whoa, whoa, oh, you know, like, that's intense. Um, anybody who says that the Bible is boring clearly has not read every single book of the Bible. And... Uh, and I'll try to maintain my maturity because I have so many jokes as well. In fact, I ran a few by my wife earlier this week and they immediately got chopped, <laughs> cut. So if you want to talk about it later at my house, some coffee, I can tell you all the jokes. John's got a bunch of good ones too. He's, going, he's doing Hosea next week and it's like, yeah, dude, we need, to, we need to grow up, both of us. <laughs> but really, what is, what is a book filled with fervent, sensual, erotic sex and love doing in the canon of Scripture? Why is it here? That's the question we'll examine a bit today. And I'd like to give you a bit of a thesis statement from a, a writer, Tremper Longman, to kind of give you bearings for where we're going this morning. He says this. He says, without the song, we would be left with only spare and often negative words about a reality that is crucial to the human experience, love and sex. God in his wisdom has spoken through the poet of the song to both encourage and warn us about the unquenchable power of love and desire. The song celebrates the joy of physical touch, the exhilaration of exotic scent, the sweet sound of a lover's voice, and the taste of another's lips. The song is a divine affirmation of love and an acknowledgement of the pain that often accompanies it. There is so much misunderstanding around the subject of the song, and hopefully um, with all the ways in which culture and even, even carnal desires have kind of fogged it up, hopefully the Bible will give us some clarity around the topic today. You see, the song really is a gift from God, which I believe gives us wonder, wisdom, and work to consider this morning. That's what we're going to be exploring. The wonder, the wisdom, and the work kind of offered to us in, in the song. So we'll start with, with wonder. As I mentioned early, earlier, it's very unique. offers this vivid imagery of, of uh, sex and intimacy. 
So, but beyond its uniqueness, the song raises many questions around its authorship, as you already heard people referring to it as the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon. Uh, like I said, we'll touch on it a little bit, but not into the weeds too much. But the song raises many questions around authorship and interpretation. In other words, who, uh, who wrote it and what does it mean? Who wrote this song and what does it mean? Some connect Solomon as both the author and the main character of the song. Uh, verse 1 does, in fact, say the Song of Song, which is uh, Solomon's. Um, and that's like a dead giveaway, right? <laughs> that's, that's what it feels like, at least, dead giveaway. But if this is true, it raises some pretty interesting questions around the character. Primarily, if the song is really about intense love and devotion shared by a man and a woman, doesn't Solomon's prodigious polygamy send a bit of a mixed message? I don't know about you, but that's the first hurdle that I ran into kind of thinking through this. If you recall 1 Kings 11, you'll remember that Solomon was quite the collector of wives and concubines. 700 wives for political purposes and 300 concubines to satisfy the flesh, to be exact. Uh, and long story short, it didn't work out. But if you take that perspective, it's sort of a difficult sell on Sunday in a sermon to the church. Now, other perspectives, some rabbinic traditions as old as the Midrash Rabbah, which is mid to late millennium AD, suggest that perhaps the song is a story of Solomon's first love, his first love, before he complicated it. That's also a possibility. Before he got all mixed up with a million wives and concubines, this was a tale of his sweetest and first love. I don't know. Other scholars suggest a different author altogether. Perhaps a woman, as a large portion of the text is in fact uh, coming from a woman's voice. Ian Duguid, who has a great commentary on the book, says, the woman speaks significantly more than the man does. And her words begin and end the song. She also uses the pronoun I, and myself, along with the phrases, my soul and my heart, far more frequently than he does. He hardly talks about himself, engages in little of the self-reflection that she does. And with what I know about men, it's pretty consistent with our character. When the woman is thinking on a much deeper level, the, 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 the man is just saying, boy, you are beautiful. <laughs> right? It's like, like that, that's how I feel um, with my wife. And actually, if you read chapter 4, that's exactly what's happening. He's saying, you're stunning. You're beautiful. Like, I, I can't think. And with that thought process, the Bible does employ female writers uh, all throughout scripture. Um, many poems have been penned by women. 
I think the most beautiful of the Bible's poems are actually penned by women. Uh, Miriam, uh, Deborah, Hannah, Mary, just to name a few. So what do I think? Who do I think authored the letter? Well, guess what? I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And so we wonder about it. And that's okay. In fact, that's one thing I would like to stir up within us as we study Scripture, is that we would be okay with wonder. I think too often we have to have all the answers. You know, that's one of the weaknesses of our particular doctrines that we hold, is that we like to, you know, tighten everything up so tight that we have it, you know, all sorted out. But the Bible, if we're honest, and we're really reading it with a humble heart, it has so much paradox and mystery, and it doesn't have answers. And what I've learned in how to do hermeneutics or interpretation wisely and well is when God doesn't speak on a particular, in a particular area, we should be uh, careful not to as well. And so, anyway, there's that. First, first, first gift I give you is I don't know who, who wrote the book. Now let's turn to the interpretation, because it gets more challenging beyond the question around the author. Because it's pretty obvious that the song is about love, but the bigger question is whose love? Whose love? Love between a man and a woman, or love between God and his people? Is it, is it a story about a man and a woman's love, or a story about God as love for his people. Well, historically, the hermeneutic, the interpretation, has been that the song is a picture of God's love for his people and has actually, therefore, been viewed as an allegory. The Talmud, a series of teachings on the Torah, viewed the song as a representation of Yahweh's relationship to Israel. And the advent of the Incarnation uh, with the advent of the, uh, the Incarnation, the early church fathers developed from Paul's writings a view of the song depicting Christ's love for his church. And per perhaps you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 5 when it reads, and I have it here, the mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It's, it is helpful for us to understand the language around uh, marriage between a man and a woman in Ephesians. But Paul says the mystery is profound, marriage itself. And I'm saying this, that it refers to Christ and the church. God's love for his people, God's love for Israel is so strong, so intimate, and it would be very difficult for us to miss it as we're reading through the pages of Scripture. In fact, that's what I would like to do for you this morning, is take a, a portion out of Ezekiel chapter 16 so you would understand the scope and the immense love that God has for Israel, okay? It's pretty intense, just so you know. Kids, you can plug your ears or talk to your parents after church. But here's what it says, beginning in verse 4 of chapter 16. And it's up there for you to follow. It says, And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred 
on the day that you were born. And this is God speaking to Israel. He says, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. You were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you and with, wa- with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk with an embroidered cloth. And you ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect uh, through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also, my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, and you set them uh, set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord. And you took your sons and your daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? In all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Obviously, the imagery here that God is giving us is that of a people who have uh, sold themselves completely into idolatry. And I hope, I'm not, I'm not trying to be provocative here by reading that passage uh, to you this morning. I'm, I'm trying to illustrate to you what the Bible already illustrates about it in terms of its relationship uh, between God and Israel. It's intense. It's powerful. It's all connected to covenant love. And in God's heart and his mind, it really matters. Marriage matters to him. The promise matters to him. In fact, I want to pick up in verse 34 of the same chapter and then we'll, and then we'll move it along because if you're, if you're feeling a little uncomfortable with that. In verse 30, he says, How sick is your heart? 
declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute, because you scorned payment, adulterous wife, who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from uh, other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment while no payment was given to you. Therefore, you were different. I hope you hear God's heartbreak. It's his heartbreak over the relationship he has with his people. The covenant he started um, has ultimately been broken because his people have given themselves to the idol worship of the land. And in just in case we're wondering, this is what idolatry looks like in any era for all of God's people. It's intense. And believe it or not, preachers who are preaching through this book of the Bible actually prefer this perspective. I'd rather uh, only delve into the allegorical approach because it means that there are fewer landmines that I might potentially step on as I'm talking about sex and intimacy. Because with all that being said, there's also a very strong case for us taking a literal approach of this, these passages as well. Let's be honest, and let's be very real. When you read through the Song of Songs, the imagery is very vivid. It's very real. It's very intense. And if you've ever had a, a, a relationship like that, you know exactly what's going on there. The poem, in other words, clearly portrays a male and female, a male and female lover, lovers celebrating the divine gift of erotic love within the confines of marriage. It is seen as God's very good gift, and it is meant to instruct us on matters of intimacy. Like Tremper Longman said earlier, he's saying it exists because so, there is so little information outside of this book in the rest of the Bible. So it's kind of, when you think about it in those ways, very necessary. And while the identity of the uh, author of the song might be in question, I think we have a better path forward in terms of interpretation. You see, the wonder within this, the interpretation of the song, is I think it's most helpful when we take both perspectives. I think we need to take an allegorical approach because the Bible gives us allegory and metaphor, and there's this language in Ephesians and language in Ezekiel, and obviously this language in the songs, and in other places in Scripture. But also, this is also love between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage, and it is to be taken Literally. And it is to teach us something very powerful. So we will move from the wisdom portion of the sermon, or the, 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 the wonder portion of the sermon, to the wisdom part. Because there is great wisdom, great practical stuff for us to gather uh, right now. So let's talk about the, the wisdom. We can't cover the entire book 
So we're just going to focus on uh, two lines. I want to talk to you about two lines. Um, see, when I was listening in my headphones to Gregory, um, there were a couple lines that kept ringing in my ears. And I think if you read it and you're familiar with it, these lines will be familiar to, to you. But they're repeated, and therefore they're important, but also I think they're very wise. First, in chapters 2, chapters 3, and 8, you'll find this line, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Crystal, when she was reading, that was the final line of the passage, that you not, uh, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now clearly, the text is not prohibiting sex. It's offering wisdom around the subject. Um, in other words, it's saying let love blossom in the right time. And I think we would be wise to attach. Uh, we should let it also blossom in the right way. In the right time, in the right way. Have you ever, have any of you ever heard the song uh, Your Sex is on Fire by the Kings of Leon? If you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. If not, you don't need to Spotify it. Don't worry. <laughs> but I, I've heard the analogy that sex is like a fire. Um, it's great when it's in a fireplace, but it's dangerous uh, outside of it. Meaning, a male and female, monogamous in marriage, is great. And beyond those biblical parameters lies different degrees of danger. No metaphor, no metaphor of course, is perfect, but this one is certainly helpful. Now, opponents of the Song of Songs would be quick to point out that the book never once mentions marriage, which is true, and so I'm not helping myself. But, however, here's what we do discover in the song. Ian Duguid, again, he summarizes, the couple are not called husband and wife, but the centerpiece of the book is a wedding scene that concludes with the consummation of their relationship. It is in this poem that the man calls the woman bride for the first time. The word occur occurs no fewer than six times in the poem. And nowhere else in the song, emphatically connecting the sexual experience described here with the appropriate legal status that goes with it. Emphatically connecting the sexual experience described here with the appropriate legal stat status that goes with it. The language in the poem sure does seem to support the concept of marriage. And when you connect it with the very pervasive Edenic uh, imagery and language of the song, um, which starts, if you're familiar, in chapter 1, verse 14, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi, all the way to the end of the song, and in chapter 8, verse 13 and 14, says, O you who dwell in the gardens with companions, listening for your voice, let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. There's a good case to be made around the idea of God having a good design 
and idea for sex and intimacy from the song. And I think we would be very wise to consider the line of the poem, not to rush this kind of love along um, and wait on its timing and the way it, uh, it fulfills itself. We'd be wise to take strong consideration around waiting and the timing of this intense love. You see, two becoming one flesh is God's idea. It's powerful, it's sacred, and may we hear the wisdom of the song. Sadly, we often take our cues on marriage and sex from the culture that says sex is everything and should be experienced in any and every way, and that marriage is disposable. But this is not the heart of God. Uh, all of that within culture are disordered desires. God, obviously, in the text, gives us a good design and plan for this intense love, and he says, you have to be patient about it, and you have to step into it in God's way. And on a side note, perhaps you're saying this morning, a love like this has yet to awaken in me. Maybe you're saying, I don't know if that love will ever awaken in me. And that, my friends, is okay. Remember, Jesus didn't have a romantic relationship and therefore did not have sex. And he was the most healthy, well-adjusted, ideal human to ever exist. In a culture that says sex is everything, our Savior is saying, I have a fulfilled life outside of that apart from that. Do you see the juxtaposition and the, the dichotomy there? There's great wisdom in just listening to that line. Kids, young people, I know you're rushing to be adults. You know, I remember talking to my kids. They want to be adults so bad. Uh, you know, you don't, get, you don't get childhood back. That's all I can say. You don't get that back. It's the best time of life. You know, when your dad, your mom's paying for everything, and, you know, and it's the best. Like, suck your parents dry for everything they have until they, until they, until they kick you out, because then you're on your own, and, it, and then you're paying your own bills. But, um, but you don't need to rush love. You don't need to awaken this, this love until God's appointed time and in, and in God's appointed way. And, and, I'm, and let me tell you this, I'm, now I'm talking to the kids, it's like youth group today. Uh, um, all, of, all of us old people, we can tell you uh, how, um, how ruining it is to, to walk a path outside of God's design and plan. So there's that. I mean, I'm sure you got a lot of brothers and sisters here who would tell you it's, it can get messy, and here's how not to do it. We're really good. We, we're pretty good at telling you what not to do. Um, so there's a lot of wisdom in there in that waiting, right? Not rushing into it. But out of that wisdom, we also see the work God has done and is doing in offering this sacred perspective. Which leads me to the second line, that was repeated, again, it's repeated in the song, repeated in my headphones, and perhaps you're familiar. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. 
right? I see some of you nodding because you know it, like you've heard it. You've, it's, it's been on repeat, and that's a beautiful line. The unknown author of the song touches on this idea a couple of times, a couple chapters, and in doing so, depicts a restoration of male and female desire for one another. Uh, Caitlin Richards of the Bible Project, and I hope you are reading your, I hope you're doing Bible Project. If you're, if you're not doing those videos and dig, digging into that, you're missing out because it's just really phenomenal scholarly work. It's deep theology with uh, sketches and cartoons. I mean, it's really cool. Um, but she says this. She says, the direct echo of Genesis 3.16 reveals a redemptive reversal of desire through the use of the rare Hebrew word desire. In uh, Genesis, Eve's desire for Adam indicates a tension and imbalance of power between the created beings. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. In the song, this same word is used of the man toward the woman to communicate a profound mutuality and shared desire. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Mutuality in terms of male and female relationship was God's intention all along. Do you see what was broken in the fall and in rebellion and in disobedience and the repercussions of sin was a disordering of the relationship that man and woman would have. And do you understand this? God's good design is for man and woman to share their relationship in mutuality. And the fall has broken all that. The healing and restoration of a broken relationship between a man and woman is God's heart. And this is not what people are thinking when they think of marriage, right? Or am I wrong? This is not what people see. They don't go to Genesis chapter 2 and 3 and get their, their bearings for marriage in those places. You see, the subject, when it's viewed in the context of culture, it's a shock that anybody would ever have the courage to get married. It's, it almost seems absurd. If you just look at it through the lens of culture, it's almost insane that people would ever get mar uh, married. Because often when the topic comes up, uh, the conversation inevitably revolves around the difficulty of having a spouse, right? I'll sum it up with a couple of uh, uh, jokes from comedians to help prove my point. Uh, Rita Rudner, she says, I love being married. It's so great to find that one special person you want to annoy for the rest of your life. And Bill Maher says, you know, there's a name for people who are always wrong about everything all the time. Husband. <laughs> Stupid husbands and annoying wives. Why would anyone ever want to be married? Genesis tells us the design in marriage has always been mutuality. And the Song of Songs says that even on this side of the fall, in the right relationship, Eden can still be experienced. And I don't know about you, that blows my mind around marriage. I understand what the culture says, the jokes are funny, and I understand the tensions within relationships, but Genesis 
gives us a different framework for marriage. The song shows us something so beautiful. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. A mutuality that was rooted in an untainted, perfect creation. In the right relationship, Eden can still be experienced. Marriage is not a ball and a chain. It's a blessing. Think about it, my friends. After the fall, when Adam and Eve were driven east and out of the garden, there was one thing they were able to take with them out of paradise. Marriage. The one thing they could take with them was marriage. Because marriage is mutuality between a man and a woman, and that's terribly profound. Terribly profound. Youngsters, that's where God is taking you or inviting you to in your potential loves. You see, this song, when it's sung in harmony with the rest of Scripture, presents beautiful wonder, wisdom, and work. The song does not exist on the pages of Scripture to make us feel weird. But that's what so many people do, and that's their experience with the book as they read it. I just feel weird. In fact, Song of Songs is one of, the, is one of those rare books that is very rarely ever preached in, um, in, in, in church. Did you know that? Lots of pastors don't even know what to do with it, so they say, ignore it. Skip it. Mike, he chickened out of it. <laughs> uh, sh- for shame, Mike. For shame. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully you see there's a big difference between the way the world sees, thing and the, sees things and the way God sees them. And Scripture is so consistent to show us that time and time again. Yes, there are, there's always going to be interpretive challenges. There's always going to be stuff that we, we say, ah, I, don't, I don't like it, it makes me uncomfortable, I don't know what to do with it. But God says, you know what, just hold my hand, walk with me in it, and I'll show you something truly special about it even if it's just simply mystery. Even if it's just, you're God, and I'm not. I don't get this. And it makes me feel a little bit smaller, you a little bit bigger, and me feel a whole lot more loved in this situation. So hopefully, hopefully I've made the case to you that, uh, that the song is really beautiful and helpful, and it gives us a grand design God's heart for humanity. But we would also, and I would be doing you an injustice if I didn't go further with this sermon. And it's this. We can also agree that at the end of the day, um, human marriage is not enough. It just, it just isn't. I look at my wife over there today, She's so sweet. She smiles at me. It's not always Eden. It isn't. Sometimes there's disconnect in that. And in fact, Beth and I had a little bit of a disconnect last night. (laughs) 
it's human, we're humans, we're flawed, we're failed. So there's going to be those disconnects. And those of you who have been in it for a while, Beth and I have been in it for 24 years, um, you're going to have some disconnects. But last night, the thing that broke my heart the most, other than we just need to sort what out, what the miscommunication out, is that it reminds me of the brokenness of Eden. When, when I fight with my wife, it's, it gets so, that sacredness gets so just torn up in my heart. That's, you guys, that's why you have that turmoil with your, your spouse that you have stepped into covenant with. Because something sacred that God has ordained and God has designed and God has joined together, when that is broken, that's why it hurts. But that's, that's human relationship. That, and that is marriage. That's true marriage. Youngsters, that's true marriage. <laughs> is there's going to be a disconnect there. But the covenant can get you through anything. But that's that first part. There's disconnect, right? Um, and I touched on it a little bit earlier. Sometimes this, that kind of love out of the song and that institution of marriage doesn't touch your life. Sometimes it, sometimes it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. I don't know what else to say about it, but sometimes it just doesn't ever take place in your life. And of course, um, sometimes there's a divorce. Sometimes a covenant is cut in half and the people go their separate ways and experience deep heartbreak and trauma for the rest of their lives because guess what? Um, what God has joined, he says, let no man separate. That's what Jesus says when he's talking about divorce in the Gospels. So when it's separated, that's the reason why it hurts so much. And people stepping into it without the, that understanding, they don't even have words around for why it hurts so much and why it's so destructive. But divorce happens. And of course, at the end of the day, there are deaths that take place. I love to say that. I hope that Beth and I get to die holding hands. I hope. But death will come. It just will. But marriage is sacred. It's so beautiful and sweet. I wasn't planning on crying in the notes, but <laughs> this, is a good, this is a good spot to give you a long quote to consider as we wrap up this sermon. I'll give you a quote and a couple of thoughts. And it's again from Duguid, Ian Duguid. To miss that connection between human and divine love which allegorical interpretation makes instinctively, even if sometimes inappropriately, is to miss something profound and important. The awesome power and unique nature of human love within marriage is precisely what makes it such a perfect analogy for the relationship between the bride of Christ and her husband, or between the individual believer and God. The original human one-flesh intimacy in the garden was never simply about Adam and Eve enjoying each other's company. It was intended to reflect an image of the nature of God himself and his inter-Trinitarian relations. Two distinct and different people who become one flesh conjoined forever. 
This same intimacy will ultimately be extended to the bride of Christ by her Savior. As a result, application to the relationship of Christ and the church flows naturally from the Song of Songs in a metaphor designed by God himself. Of course, the metaphor of bride and bridegroom is an analogy, as are all metaphors. This frees the interpreter from trying to find forced spiritual significance in every poetic detail of the text. But the metaphor is a rich and profound mystery that will repay much pondering. So therefore, you probably wanted me to talk to you about gazelles and gardens and all those things to tell you today and tell you what all that means. But that would be a disservice to you, and it would be ignoring the beautiful scope of Scripture as it all culminates in these moments as we read them one Sunday after another. Hopefully, you're seeing the gift of reading or of, of doing a book of the Bible every single Sunday. It's like we get this huge overview and we see the immense scope of God's love for us in each, each book. And so, therefore, Everything considered, guys, I'm not going to speculate on all the imagery of the song, but I will invite you to join Jesus in deep union and intimacy. I will invite you to the only perfect relationship that has ever existed between God and man, and it's the one that is established by Jesus himself. And Christian... I encourage you today, as you come to the table, to close your eyes and whisper these words to Jesus. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We we thank you. We can't believe that you would ever love us. As we come to the table today, we, we pray that we would know the scope of your love. And we would understand how, how intense, how passionate, how ferocious your love is towards us. And God, with a prayer like that, we cannot help but ask for forgiveness. We confess in repentance that we too stray in idolatry. We too play the whore and the prostitute. And we ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for disordering our loves. Forgive us for giving us what is sacred to others. Jesus, um, renew, refresh, and reinvigorate uh, our, our, the love that you have for us and our understanding of that love. So God, we thank you. Beloved, thank you that we are yours and you are ours. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.